Welcome back to Bible Love. It is, I don't know that this happens too often. It's just me and Tony. Mary Balfour, I think, is at their pre-Lenten clergy retreat for Upper South Carolina. So I think she's enjoying Camp Gravit, and uh, Tony and I get to enjoy each other's company. Today is, um, that when we're recording, is the feast day of Marcella of Rome. And so I thought we would say this prayer. Let us pray. O God, who satisfies the longing souls and fills the hungry with good things, grant that we, like your servant Marcella, may hunger and thirst after you above the vain pomp and glory of the world, and delight in your word above all manner of riches, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So we've been talking about prophecy for a bit, yeah. Um, a bit. But and now we're getting into a bunch of books. Probably never read them in your Bible. It's a real section. Some of them are just a couple pages, easy to skip by them. And we're going to start going out of order a little bit. If then, if you just buy your uh, Bible at the bookstore and start turning the pages, you won't be following along with us. We're jumping around a bit. Tony's going to get into that some. So, uh, Tony, tell us what we're talking about today, and then we'll get into why we're separating these out. Sure. Glad to. And good morning, Alan. And we we trust and pray that Mary Balfour is having a good experience at Camp Gravit. Um, today, we are talking about the pre-exilic prophets. Just to do a quick loop back to the, the episode we did on the introduction to Hebrew prophecy, Um. The, the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, what we think of as the Old Testament, are divided several ways. One is chronologically. There are some prophets that appear in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, and we call those the former prophets because they came first. Prophecy then became such an important phenomenon in the life of the Hebrew people that you started to have not just a narrator who would describe what the prophet did and said, but the prophet's own words began to be preserved. And we call those people the latter prophets because they came later. The latter prophets are divided into two groups that we know most well. The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, called major just because they write long books. And then the minor prophets that write these much shorter books. And in fact, you may recall in the Hebrew Bible, the book of the 12, what we think of, what we have is 12 books in our English Bible is one book in the Hebrew Bible. All of these smaller writings, not less important necessarily, but smaller writings are grouped together. So the other way to think about the prophets is in a purely chronological fashion. The former prophets all come first. But the latter prophets, the way they're ordered in English Bible is not the order in which they lived and worked. The major prophets are so big, you can just deal with them on their own anytime. You don't have to think about chronology very much. But among the minor prophets, it's a really big deal whether they prophesied before, during, or after the exile 
And so that's what we're kind of shifting to. We're going to follow that chronology because understandably, the prophets who prophesied before the exile tended to say similar things, but those things were very different from what the prophets who come after the exile say. Now, what do I mean when I talk about the exile? Israel becomes a political entity with King Saul. When Saul becomes king, Israel is a nation. The monarchy or the kingship is united under Saul, David, and Solomon. But after Solomon, Israel divides into the northern kingdom calls Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. In 722 BCE, the Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, and it really never exists again. Judah remains as the remnant, two tribes, but Jerusalem. So you have the capital and you have the temple, and that's very important. Judah exists for another century and a half, roughly, but always under somebody's thumb, always a vassal of Assyria or Egypt or Babylon. Around 600 BC, Judah makes an attempt to assert its political independence. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon doesn't take kindly to this, lays siege to the city, conquers the city, inflicts tremendous damage, carries great spoils of victory and about 10,000 people away into exile. This is the first exile in 597. Ten years later, for reasons we won't go into, Judah again tries to assert its independence. This time, Nebuchadnezzar has had it. He comes, he raises the city, he destroys the temple, and the political entity of the Hebrew people ceases to exist. There is no nation to which the Jewish people now belong. 587 BC. 539 BCE, Cyrus of Persia conquers the Babylonians. And the next year in 538, Cyrus begins to let the Jews go back home. They go back to Jerusalem and its environs. It will become known as Judea. Uh, They rebuild the temple. But the point is, there's this period of 50 years where the Jews are literally a people without a country. They are without a place to worship. There's a Jewish community in exile in Babylon, but they don't have the temple. When you've lost the land in the temple, the land which is associated with the covenant with Abraham, the temple which is associated with King David and the worship of Yahweh, it was a it was an incredibly bleak time in the history of the Jewish people. Generally speaking, just like just like political events today, you you can see some things coming. The prophets were among those who could see some of these unfortunate military events coming. And and so the prophets before the exile tend to say, hey, we got to straighten up. And of course, the last thing I need to say just to set us up is to say a word about the theological framework for that. Bible love listeners have heard me many times talk about what I call reward and retribution theology. This view in the Old Testament If you are good and faithful and obedient, God pours out blessings on you in this life because they don't really believe in an afterlife yet. And if you are unfaithful and disobedient, God pours out punishment on you in this life. This reward and retribution theology is introduced all the way back in Deuteronomy. 
And this is the, the dominant theological framework of the Jews for centuries. Well, not surprisingly then, what we hear the prophets say is God is using Assyria to chasten Israel for their disobedience. God is using Babylon to punish Judah for its disobedience. We're going to see that dismantled because our Hebrew Bible is not chronological. We've already seen that on Bible love in the book of Job. We're certainly going to see it dismantled when we get to Jesus. But I say that just to say this is the theological framework that we're going to see in the pre-exilic prophets. That's not surprising, with one notable exception we'll talk about. Uh, But while we don't endorse this theology on this side of Jesus, you need to say, hey, this is the backdrop against which these things are written to help folks understand that. Yeah, I think that's helpful. And we've said this all along is we read, you know, the beginning of the story, knowing the end. And so then it's hard for us to to read. Right. You can't see a movie for the first time a second time. Right. You right. never know the spoilers. You never know. Um, and so as we're getting into these pre-exilic prophets, um, what are are there some common themes among them all? Yes. Um, shape up. Um, there is there is especially um, this concern among the prophets of caring for all people. Justice is an important thing. We're going to hear. I'm going to I'm going to paint in broad strokes some of these pre-exilic prophets, and we're going to hear almost all of them talking about caring for the poor, how the rich have a responsibility to use the blessings God has given them to help others, not just hoard them for themselves. We're going to hear these prophets complain that there are corrupt civic leaders, kings and judges that that abuse their positions of power. There are corrupt religious leaders who are more interested in accumulating wealth or prestige than in being faithful to the word of Yahweh. And again, all of these things are going to be so. So then these prophets are going to say, if if we don't stop these things, if we don't change for the better, something terrible is going to happen. And then when something terrible happens, not surprisingly, they say, well, this is God's retribution. We we don't see it as God's retribution, but their calls for living faithfully are very relevant. Listen, if if the message of these prophets is both religious leaders and civic leaders have a responsibility to share God's justice and God's blessings with all people, not just the rich and powerful. I, I don't know of any message that's more relevant for America in 2024 than that, than that message. Yeah. yeah we, um, so we sometimes record these out of order for folks listening. And so we've already recorded Amos, which you'll hear next week with Mitchell Felton. And I can tell you there are things in Amos this really old book that are more applicable today than sometimes it seems it was back then. Justice, righteousness, all of that. So the themes are are ever present. As we get through, so we're going to spend um, one week on each of these prophets, the pre-exilic. Then we're going to come back and do a uh, breakout on Jonah, and then we'll get to the post-exilic. 
Good. Um, as we're looking these next five or so weeks, what should we be on the lookout for, Tony? Do you have some highlights from each book? Yeah. It, will that be okay if I just do a few highlights, yep. even though you've heard what Mitchell says about Amos? Our listeners haven't. Uh, Amos is remembered for his concern for justice for all people, uh, for, uh, again, the rich not hoarding their blessings but but sharing them with others. And Amos is is remembered for a style of oracle. An oracle is a prophetic pronouncement. And Amos is uh, remembered for these numbered oracles. Uh, We saw some of these in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Three of this and four of that. So Amos uh, says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, they who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of their way. That's a great, stylistically it represents Amos, but in terms of content, that's what Amos is concerned about. Uh, You're more interested in a new pair of shoes than you are the poor. You know, that's, that's not God's plan. Uh, Amos, by the way, is very interesting because he um, is from Tekoa in the southern kingdom, but goes to Israel, the northern kingdom, to deliver a message there. And whereas some of our prophets have had 40-year prophetic careers, Amos was a, a farmer, a dresser of sycamore trees, and a shepherd, and he seems to have gone delivered a couple of messages, and then his career as a prophet was over, and that makes him fairly unique. Um, Amos will also be remembered, I think, by our American audience in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. uh, He says, we will not be content until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like an ever-living stream. And he is quoting the book of Amos. Um, next, and I'm taking these chronologically, next comes Hosea. The unique thing about Hosea, he is the only latter prophet from the northern kingdom. He is the only person from the northern kingdom to have his actual words recorded. Similar themes, he chastens the rich. He says, look, you got to have taxes, but the heaviest taxes are being exacted from the poor while the rich landowners aren't paying their part. So again, is there some temporary application there? He chastens the people for unethical business dealings, a false bottom in the basket. So you think you're getting a bushel, but you're only getting two thirds of a bushel. Uh, He chastens the people for immorality. God expects us ethically and morally to live a certain way. But the thing that, that Hosea is most remembered for is not anything he says, but it's something he does. We saw, especially in Ezekiel, this array of prophetic actions, actions that have a symbolic message from God. And the book of Hosea begins, the Lord said to the prophet Hosea, go and take a wife of whoredom because Israel has played the whore 
in its sins against Yahweh. Absolutely striking language, but even more striking as as the story plays out. So Hosea marries a prostitute named Gomer, uh, and their relationship with one faithful partner and one unfaithful partner becomes the metaphor for the relationship between Israel and Yahweh. And they have uh, three children who have very symbolic names, two of which are not pitied and not my people. The prophet says, we're giving God reason to, to turn away from us, to reject us from being the people of God. Uh, and so in some ways, it's, it's, it's stark with its language, it's stark with the weight of its message, and yet, at the same time, Hosea gives us some of the tenderest depictions of Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible, including strikingly this image of God as the mother of Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, coming out of slavery in Egypt. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. And yet I was the one who taught Ephraim to walk, and I took them up in my arms. They didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness and bands of love. I was to them like the one who lifts the infant to the cheek and feeds the child at my breast. So this picture of God taking this infant Israel in God's arms, nursing the child, caring for the child, teaching the child to walk, it's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful, beautiful language and imagery. And so how about Micah? Yeah. Well, let me say one more thing about Hosea. Oh, yeah. This is for Christian readers. Um, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea 6.6. 6. Jesus quotes Hosea on two separate occasions, that same verse. And I'm always interested in that. The name yeah. means who is like Yahweh. And there is a verse in Micah that says, who is like our God? I think that's very clever. He kind of works his name into his prophetic message, but that's appropriate. Um, Micah is striking because his prophecy spans the time before and the time after Israel. So 722, when the Assyrians destroy Israel, he says it's coming, and then he talks about it after it's come, after it has come. He interprets it in that very traditional way, but but he's, I think, the only prophet that talks on both sides of the fall. Um, and Micah is the first prophet to say um, what happened to Israel can happen even in Jerusalem. Even the temple can be lost. And that's not fulfilled until 100 years after Micah dies. But Micah turns out to be right. And so similarly, he, he, he chastens the civic leaders. You're taking bribes. You're getting wealthy instead of carrying out justice. You're taking advantage of the poor. And he chastens the religious leaders. He says the priests are giving people a false sense of security, saying, isn't Yahweh in our midst? Aren't we the covenant people? We're God's chosen. 
Nothing bad could ever happen to us. And Micah says, better wake up. And similarly, he says, the prophets prophesy in exchange for money. So instead of speaking the word of Yahweh, they speak what their rich contributors want them to speak, which is a message for modern clergy, I think. (laughs) Yeah, that's a church growth strategy, right? Just tell people what they want to hear and then see how that lasts when things fall apart. Absolutely. There's one, everyone knows one verse for Micah, right? Well, that yeah, Uh, Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? And again, we heard this one a way to summarize that is outward ritual is not a substitute for inner renewal or inner faithfulness. So we've talked about this already on Bible love, but those people that we heard that in actually live after Micah. Micah is the one who introduces this very significant theme that what God really wants is not outward change, not sacrifice, not circumcision. What God wants is for us to change our hearts and and to adopt the values that God wants us to live by. So um, I'm going to gloss Nahum and Zephaniah. Uh, I whispered to Alan before we came on the air, if we lost those two, it probably wouldn't be a huge deal. Y'all could talk about those in a few weeks. I do want to talk about Habakkuk. Um, Habakkuk, the, 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 the summary of Habakkuk is, why does God let bad things happen to good people? I mean, 3,000 years later, we're, we're still talking about that. Um, in a pattern of call and response or complaint and response, Habakkuk says, I look around and I see wicked people prospering. While good people are suffering. That's individual. Collectively, he says, we're God's people. We're striving to be faithful to the covenant. And then a pagan nation like Babylon is on the verge of, of destroying us. God, why would you let these things happen? This question has always been around. It's still around. And again, we've already done Job. But Habakkuk sets the stage for Job. And if you will recall, the pattern is the same. Job says something, and then God answers. Habakkuk says something, and then God answers. But even more than that, Habakkuk is the first prophet to say, I'm not sure that this reward and retribution theology really holds up. Alan, I was trying to think of an analogy. I mean, the best I can come up with, this would be like, me stepping into a pulpit on Sunday and saying, I'm not sure that Jesus Christ is the way to salvation. I mean, that's not that's not hyperbolic. This has been the way to think about God for centuries and centuries. How do you gather the courage to say, you know, maybe we've been wrong. Maybe this is not the way we need to, to think about God. And Habakkuk comes around 
Some people say the, the, the third chapter was added. Some people say he just kind of hedged his bets. Either way, he lands in a fairly orthodox place. But the fact that he is the first one to say this theological framework that we've been using all these years doesn't pass the empirical test. Look around at the world. This is not the way the world works. So he creates this tiny fissure in reward and retribution theology. The wisdom literature is going to get a hold of it and and, and really pry it apart. And then Jesus is going to come along and he doesn't call Habakkuk's name, but Jesus is going to come along and say Habakkuk was right and Job was wrong. Yeah. And then in your notes, which I commend to everyone. Yeah. You've got in your notes that, um, after Jesus, you know, as the early church is developing this theology, Paul quotes from Habakkuk, right? Yes. So, so Paul, you know, I'm interested when Jesus quotes somebody, when Paul quotes somebody, as we know, the, the, the great centerpiece of Pauline theology is that salvation is by grace. That's God's end of it. On our end of it, we receive that gift through faith. We don't earn it through works. And so in Romans and Galatians, the two places where Paul develops what is the centerpiece of his theology most carefully, in both of those places, he quotes Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. Paul says, it's, it's been in the Bible all along. It's not works, it's faith. Yeah, this, thank you. This is a great overview because these books, like we said, we don't read them on Sundays very often. Probably never heard a sermon series on Nahum. I've never um, done one. <laughs> yeah, um, but it'll be interesting to look at what we can learn from today, right? Do the rich need to pay their taxes? Do priests need to speak the truth? You know, these yeah. things that we wrestle with, these folks were wrestling with back then. Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Any last words for us as we embark on uh, several weeks looking at these? Well, just uh, um, looking forward to Jonah. Jonah's very unique among the minor prophets, so we'll get to talk about that next time. And then uh, down the road, we'll get to talk about how in the introduction to Hebrew prophecy, I said the prophets had the ability to adapt their message to the needs of the people, which is, in fact, a reflection of the way God adapts to our needs. And we'll get to talk about that uh, on the other side of the exile. Awesome. Yeah, we got you coming up a couple of times for that. Tony, as always, thank you for your notes. Thank you for your time here, helping us get the the broad overview of these before we dive in. And listeners, as always, remember, we love you, but most importantly, God does.